before I had a baby, I would have to have all this prep time, like get in my head and figure out what I'm going to do. And I realized when I ran out onto the stage, I had the baby monitor like clipped on my belt. The one thing I had to worry about in the whole world was whether or not my baby was breathing. And then the rest of the stuff didn't matter. So I looked at the monitor and it was still on. It was all staticky. And I held it up to my ear and the microphone and I looked at the audience. I said, she's probably fine. Hi, I'm Debbie Praver, and you're entering a world gone good. Well, hey, you. Good to see you. Come on in. We're about to start a brand new episode of World Gone Good, the podcast where we shine the light and or find the light in the darkness and prove that life is still pretty darn good. I am your host, Steve, and let me just say you look amazing today. You look even more amazing when you share, subscribe, rate, and review our show. Any combination of these good things help us spread the good. And for that, we say thank you and declare it is true. You are amazing. Back in my 20s, a friend of mine asked if I wanted to take a six-week stand-up comedy class with her. I said yes. At our first class, the instructor welcomed us all, and he said to look around the room. So we do. And there are about, I'd say, like 25 of us. He then tells us more than half of us would not be there when the class ends in six weeks. And I was like, how? Wait, what? No, if I pay, I'm going to cut. Like, what do you mean? What is he talking about? And guess what? Guess what? There were eight of us left who stuck it out and all the way through on that last class. There was only eight left. Comedy is hard, people, and comedy forces us to look at certain truths about the world and truths about ourselves. This is what I have learned in life. Sometimes you just gotta laugh, and luckily I come from a family that can find the funny in anything. We have had countless family dinners around the different size, different tables and different locations over the years, and the one constant was always the laughter. As a writer, I've made a career out of comedy and finding the comedy in any situation. And I got to tell you, that comedy stand-up class I took really helped me really, you know, focus in on the funny. My guest today knows all about laughing and comedy. Debbie Praver is one of my favorite and funniest humans on planet Earth. She has performed stand-up all over the country, honed her own writing skills with the likes of Mark Cherry and the team from Desperate Housewives, and she has also received her BA in physical education, exercise physiology from Cal State University at Long Beach, and has multiple group fitness certifications. Now, you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Don't worry about it. That's going to play into the good conversation we're about to have. So if you're ready for a good laugh and a free workout, here we go. Debbie Praver, you owe me money. No, Debbie Praver. (laughs) Probably do. (laughs) There's some old 15 minutes of femme tickets. Who knows? Probably. Right. (laughs) Now, where did we first meet? Set it up for the audience I know, at home. I know exactly where we first met. Oh, good. It must have been Dennis, I imagine, who told me to go audition for 15 Minutes of Femme. So I did. And it was someplace on Las Palmas, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I went in and I did like however many minutes you had me do stand up. And then we sat down and just started cracking up. And then you put me in 15 Minutes of Femme. And then there it is. 
And then I feel like I always knew you. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I was sitting at the little folding chair with you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I think we were in the, uh, ironically, I think we were in the women's center. Yes. That's exactly where it was. Which is like a perfect place to audition for a show that's all women. Yes. Run by some gay guy. Exactly. Is that on Las Palmas? I want to say it's on La Brea, just below, uh, in between Sunset and that street right above Sunset that you take to go to um, um, uh, Runyon Canyon. Oh, yes. Franklin. Franklin. Very good. Very. Oh, my God. Look at us. Let's just- I know. Let's just be yeah. like a let's just be like a Thomas guide right now for everyone. Right? Which, is, which is like nobody even knows what a Thomas guide is anymore. <laughs> well, here at World Gone Good, uh, we look into the world. We shine the light into the darkness. I talk to all sorts of friends and strangers. You are a strange friend, which is perfect. <laughs> but I'm going to jump all over the place with our conversation today because I find you as always absolutely delightful. I'm going to take you back and ask you. To talk about something, a good thing early on in your life. I think you know I'm going to hit it. You were Minnie Mouse at one point. <laughs> I was. Explain. I was, well, I didn't just walk in and like steal a costume. Um, I must have been probably 16 or maybe 16 and a half. You had to be like a certain age in order to audition. And... I didn't necessarily audition to be Minnie Mouse, but when you're a certain height, you are automatically stuffed into rodent costumes. Um, I was auditioning to be a dancer in the parade, Christmas parade, I believe it was. And when you are short, you they will put you in Mickey, Minnie, um, possibly Donald if you're super short, and the dwarves, except for Doc, because he's tall, um, Pinocchio. A lot of, lot of things. So, yeah, this is what you do when you can dance and you are five feet tall. Was this Disneyland or Disney World? Oh, Disneyland. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I just assumed that people would know that, but why would they? So, yes, Disneyland. And there was an incident, I believe, as Minnie Mouse? <laughs> yes, there was. Um, I was Minnie Mouse in Electrical Parade. Well, here's the deal. Yeah. I When you're a mouse in the in the electrical parade, well, if you're any, anyone, anyone that lights up in the electrical parade, you have a battery pack. And, um, and here's the truth of it, because, you know, in, in the joke that I do in my stand-up act, I always say that I was Minnie Mouse, but the real truth is there are four other mice that only real Disney fans would know of that pull the Cinderella coach. Right. And their names are, I believe, Gus, Jacques, and I forget the other two. I should know. So really the night that my battery pack started to leak acid and that I caught on fire, I was actually in (laughs) one of the Cinderella mice costumes. You you buried the lead on that so nicely. (laughs) I did. did. Because it's important to know because in a Minnie Mouse head, you could just take the head off. But in a Cinderella mouse costume, you cannot because the way – you the way they make the mice look really small is you actually are looking out of their hat so the face of the mouse is sort of around your belly button so the way to get in it is you put your arms straight up in the air and a wardrobe person comes over and you put your arms up and then your arms go down and the face comes down around your stomach so you have these little sticks that you hold on to that control the hands 
So you cannot get out of these alone, which is why to catch on fire on one of these was very alarming. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so I was trapped and you can't talk. Mice don't talk. And, um, but I was on fire, so I had to talk and, um, it wasn't pretty. I just spoke the way I imagined a mouse might if they could. And they were on fire. I was like, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, please. <laughs> I was like, um, excuse me. I'm a fucking fire. I'm a fucking fire. <laughs> and, um, it didn't go well. My friend, Susan, who was in one of the other Cinderella and I threw, you have a little switch of up by the ear and she turned my lights off, but there was still smoke coming out of the back. <sighs> So it was a good time. Good time. I don't really know that that's the world going good. Um, well, but- <laughs> I, I think it's going real. Now, you did you – now, you're – I imagine you're like running or wh- what is the – Yeah, well, there's there's some odd choreography that goes with those costumes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was supposed to be doing that. There's not a lot of visibility. So to run in the dark – so now my lights are off. So now I have no – really no visibility as if there was real visibility looking through the, the mesh of a hat brim anyway. Sure. Um yeah, I was, I was kind of, I, I must've looked, I imagine like the way a dog looks like when he needs to go to the bathroom, but he can't get out, you know, they kind of run around and around, like trying to come up with an idea of like how to get out to pee. And they're very friendly. That's what I felt like sort of running around a little bit in circles, but not, you know, looking all directions, trying to catch a parade captain who was dressed in very comfortable brown polyester. Um, to let them know, but you think they would know? They would just see me. Yeah, you think you they'd know. see the smoke? See the smoke. You think there's a lot going on. So yeah, I eventually did. Um, I believe I did tip over. And once you're down in that mouse costume, all bets are off. So I did was rolling around a little bit. And you don't want to take the head off because there's children. Well, that and you you can't even take it off. I mean, Gosh. I literally could have been like flames coming out, and there's no way to get yourself out of that. And two of the Cinderella mice are thinner than the others. And when the four people that are the Cinderella mice for whatever prayed, you sort of first come first serve and everybody wants to be the skinny mouse because it's easier. It doesn't weigh as much. Um, and I can't remember if I was in skinny or fat mouse, but um, yeah, I, I was rolling around and then a wardrobe person helped me up and took me behind the small world gates and got me out of it. And was it like you fell off? the Cinderella coach get back on it. Here's a new head or did they give you the day off or like what? <laughs> no, they just, um, they, cause we're, we're walking on the ground when this happens in some really hilarious looking shoes like that mice would wear. And you, they just took the head off and there was smoke coming out and they were like, Oh wow, look at this. And then they just, um, no, they didn't do a thing. I think I was expected to do the second parade. <laughs> I believe they, I, yeah, I believe they just replaced the battery pack and sent me on my way. And, you know, I was so young. I was like, okay. I believe I had to do a, a hoedown show in Bear Country after Catching on Fire and then the second parade following. That's a commitment. That. I mean, you're a committed oh, it's actor. Young and stupid, more like it. But, you know, what are you going to do for my, what I was I making? Probably three fifty an hour. So you said at some point ventured to Hollywood. Yes. And you turned, you turned all this into comedy. You turned all this into a one woman show. I what was that? <laughs> well, it was more that I used to, I began to then get in trouble. I was teaching dance fitness classes 
And um, I was getting in trouble and written up a lot for being funny during my classes. Really? Yeah. Can you imagine? There, you know, people got their panties in a bunch over anything in this town. So, um, yeah, I would get, I would, I would either get people saying, "Oh, it's so refreshing," like to just have somebody just be real in a fitness class. You know, I just refused to be like four more, three more, two more from the top. Let's go again. You know, I just was like, "Here's the move. Let's do it and let's be funny." Right, um, right. So then I thought, well, maybe I could get paid for being funny instead of getting in trouble. Smart. So that's how that evolved into that. And as it turns out, I was able to. So, you know, I, I still do get in trouble because I still do teach a fitness class every now and then to people. And I, I do get in trouble for being funny. So, you know, people are pretty hardcore about their workouts in this town. I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How hard is it for a woman to break into comedy? You know, I'm going to give you a weird answer. I found it to be quite easy. And this is going to sound, well, I mean, just easy to, to get up. You, you can sort of move to, if you're, if you're funny, you can move into getting paid at least a little bit early on. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to put a little caveat to this. I found that if you're a woman who is not um, complaining about men, it's easier to move up. Interesting. If you're a woman and um, and you are saying how you can't get a date, um, that it doesn't usually work well. Well, that was my old thing with 15 Minutes of Femme, the show we did, which was one woman shows comedy. Yeah, I love that show. Well, my whole thing with it was when when a when a woman came in and auditioned, and I say this with all due respect about giving me a monologue, a comedy show, a song about breaking up with her boyfriend or her mother doesn't understand her or she wants to be an actress. I, it just was like, mm, yeah. I've seen it a million times. Yes, exactly. I interviewed Kathy Ladman a couple shows back. Who I love. Fantastic. And she's been doing this forever. And she really found her niche by talking of the truth of her life. Yeah. Yep. And I think it, it's your people's lives are far more interesting. And like the day, and I don't, I mean, for some reason, I, it, when a man gets up and talks about not being able to get a date, it's, and I don't want to say it's more believable, but it's more believable in the sense that if you ask any straight men, they will say that any woman can get a date because there is a man somewhere who is interested. And so, um, so men don't really laugh at women talking about how they can't get a date or how hard it is for them. So you've sort of alienated half your audience just by doing that. Whereas male comedians can complain about women all the time and everybody kind of laughs at that. And women laugh at themselves. Yes. But, but straight men don't like to laugh at themselves that much. No, no, mm-hmm. I know it's weird, but yeah. So I felt like you know once I did that, and I did move up like more quickly than I realized, and then I got hired to be like the opening spot at the Improv in Las Vegas, and I got hired as the MC. And when I got back, Bud Friedman called me into his office, and I was so nervous, and I thought, oh, that's it, I'm fired. And he said, he said, 
you're really funny. You're great on stage. She said, you're a horrible MC. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And I was like, uh, okay. And he said, I, I don't understand. And I said, well, but I've never MC'd before. So I sort of skipped that whole spot that a lot of men spend a lot of time in. So, right. so he just schooled me and he gave me all the rules about being an MC and then sent me on my way. What was the show you were an MC for? Uh, it was just the, the improv um, at, at Harris. Oh, so it was a, com- it was a comedy show. Just, so yeah, you- it was just a comedy show. So yeah. I didn't know all the ins and outs of being an MC. I just got up there and like did my, you know, did five minutes and brought on the next comic. And he was like, yeah, no. You, it's like you, there's a lot of things you need to say up front, a lot of things you need to sort of settle down, make sure everybody's phones are like all the like stuff. And then, you know, in between sort of, you know, do five minutes in between the comics and, you know, mention their names once you like when you come out, say, oh, let's hear it. it all things that seem totally normal to me now. But at the time, I had no idea. And it's so hard being an MC because I've been an MC a few times because you got to read the energy of the Mm -hmm. room and you have to read the energy. Like if someone has an amazing set, you have to feed off of that energy and almost shorten your middle ground, get the crowd to stay with that level and get the next person on. And then if you have a night like that where everybody's doing it, you're almost you're almost just like, you know, and welcome this person and welcome that yeah. person. But if somebody's energy is off or somebody doesn't have a good set, then you're responsible for like r- pulling the plane out of the ground. Oh, right. <laughs> I can still do my comedy from the 90s. This was my opening bit. Ready? I'm ready. Okay. Now it's going to play differently to anyone listening because it's <laughs> 2021. Okay, here it comes. <laughs> Uh, hey, good evening. So I'm gay. Any gay people here tonight? Silence. <laughs> and then my joke was, well, they say 10% of the world is gay. So let's see. Uh, and I started pointing at people. One, two, uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And I'll pick. And I'd point to the hottest guy in the room and go. Oh, that's you, awesome. You, sir. And the place would go crazy. And that was my opening bit. And. I was very self-referential and all that stuff. I've always wanted to try it now because my imagination is like, so I'm gay. Any gay people? And an entire room would go applauding. Yes. I'm like, okay, this oh, next yeah. joke is going to suck. <laughs> right, right, right. I know. I had one like that that I used to do a thousand years ago where I would I would talk about having had um, cervical cancer. And then I start um, I start talking about like my – my exam and how they found out. And I start like using all these like ridiculous, funny names for body parts. I'm like, listen, we're all grownups. I don't know why we can't just use, you know, real anatomical names. And then I start saying, you know, all these, I start saying like penis, vagina, like all, and, and people are supposed to, I thought they would get like quiet and weird. And so I say to a woman in the front row, like, uh, all right, here, go ahead. Can you say penis into the microphone? And she just yells it. But I meant for her to not say it. Right, right. And I had nothing planned <laughs> for when she did say it. <laughs> and it was horrible. I mean, later on, I would I would always come back with like, oh, I see it'll go in your mouth and come out. Like, you know, it's really horrible things. Like that. But in the beginning, you just, you don't know. The worst night of comedy I ever had, it's my own fucking fault, and I take full responsibility for it. 
And Dave McNeary, God bless him, booked me at the Ice House Annex. Nicest guy in the world. I love him. You know he passed away during the pandemic, right? Oh, no. I didn't know that. Yeah. I love Dave McNeary, but go ahead. I do love him, but... What a sweet... Okay, so he booked me for a Sunday night, and I had done... I had done several shows and he was like, I want you to be the headliner. I was like, what? Okay, great. I love you. Yeah. And in my head, it's a seven o'clock show, everybody. (gasps) I had eight o'clock. So I got there at like a quarter to eight. And he was like, where have you been? And I go, what do you mean? He's like, the show started at seven. I started to sweat. And then apparently all the comics were like making fun of the fact that Oh, the headliner didn't bother to show. The headliner didn't bother to show. Like they were all doing bits. And then the host of the show was like, oh, look who bothered to show up. So I like finally take the stage and I'm trying to do my material, but the audience, like they put me on last. They clearly wanted to go. And I had, I'll never forget it. I had this fluted glass of just water, like a really thin glass. And Mm -hmm. I picked it up and it had like condensation on it and it shot out of my hand and it (gasps) hit the mic stand bottom and shattered all over the front two tables and all these people jumped up and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I literally walked off the stage. That was the end of that night. And poor Dave, I like, I just, I sort of hid on the stairs in the back. Oh my God. It was the worst experience. I have no one to blame but myself. And all these people were like, the host was like, way to go, dude. And like walked out and everybody left. And then Dave found me on the stairs, you know, they're locking the building up and I haven't left. And I'm like, I'm Dave. I'm so sorry. I, He's like, you know what, man? And he was such a sweet guy. He goes, I want you to come back here next week. And I want you to get back up on the stage. And wow. he said, you fall off the horse, you get right back on it. You you get set on fire as Minnie Mouse. You put the fire out. You get that fucking <laughs> yeah. country bear jamboree yeah. and you dance yeah. your little hodo. And, um, yeah, and then you get right back out there in that mouse costume. That next week I came oh with all God. new material. And oh I went from telling jokes to just telling sort of referential story bits. And it was the best night I ever had in my life on the stage. And I walked off. Isn't that, that night. crazy? Yep. And I went from the, like the worst experience to the best experience. That's funny that you say that I had a similar experience in Vegas. It was my first comedy festival. And I had, I had flown to Las Vegas just to audition. Cause I missed the auditions here. So I went in, I did my audition and they were like, oh my gosh, that's great. Who's your manager? And I was like, oh, I don't have a manager. They said, who's your agent? I was like, I don't have an agent. And they were like, what's your deal? And I'm like, okay, you caught me. I'm a total amateur. I'm like, I have a job at a gym. I was like, can I? (laughs) So they invited me to perform. So it was my first thing. And there was like Ellen Cleghorn was there. Like a lot of like decent comedians were there. So I get there and go out to do my first showcase. And it was like the first time I was doing any of my cancer survivor material. And it was horrible. Like nobody laughed and I started to get nervous. I just, it was the first time I'd ever bombed except for it was at the Stardust. Like every place else I had a great set. So I leave, I'm miserable. I'm like, the last thing I want to do is get up on a stage and I call Mark Lano from the improv and he talks me off the ledge and he's like, you have to address the elephant in the room. So the next night I'm literally doing like full yoga sun salutations behind the curtain to like calm myself down before I go back out there. <laughs> yes. And then I saw on the stage manager's clipboard, like it would have your name and then it would have like the number of minutes you were going to do on your set. And everybody else was, was doing seven, which is what I'd done the first night when I tanked. And then 
next to my name, it said Debbie Praver, and then it said five, and then parentheses it said or three. <gasps> right. Oh, so oh. I was, I was horrified. So now I've seen that. So now I'm like behind the curtain doing full yoga, like to calm myself down. And Carol Montgomery was the MC, and she looks at me and she was like, "God, stop it! You're making me nervous." <laughs> And then I, and then I went out and had like changed all my stuff up and like tightened up my set. And I went out and it was like the whole front row was gay men. Oh, you're done. You're, you're and, and I was like, so I had like the greatest set I'd ever had in my life, but it was like on the heels of the worst possible moment. So, yeah. Yeah. That's it's, it's important. It's important to get back up. And that's a, that's an important life lesson. Oh, such a roller coaster. Yeah. And you're, you're so putting yourself out there and people don't know how scary it is, how, what a thrill it can be when it goes so well and people are vibing with you and how horrific it can be when someone's, they're all just staring at you and they're, you know, the awkward coughs and the people getting up to go to the bathroom right in front of you and you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, it's horrible. And I kind of, I like lost all of my nervousness once I had a kid because I realized like the first time I went back to Vegas and I was working at that same club at Harris and I was trying to just get out of my hotel room to get down to the showroom, but with a baby, I think she was like five months old and you just can't like, there's always something you think, okay, now's the minute I can go. So I finally come running into the backstage area. They were calling up to my room. They thought I wasn't there and I just had to run right out on stage. And before I had a baby, I would have to have all this prep time, like get in my head and figure out what to do. And I realized when I ran out onto the stage, I had the baby monitor like clipped on my belt. Oh my God. Right. And I picked it up and I looked and I realized in that moment that really I only had to worry. The one thing I had to worry about in the whole world was whether or not my baby was breathing. And then the rest of the stuff didn't matter. So I looked at the monitor and it was still on. It was all staticky. And I held up to my ear and the microphone and I looked at the audience. I said, she's probably fine. And I just turned it off and set it on the stool. (laughs) Right. And then that just like broke it for me. And I was like, it doesn't even matter. So, I mean, that, that really, yeah, it really made me realize, I mean, don't get me wrong. I still get nervous sometimes, but I, I take myself back to that moment. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter. Like if nobody in here laughs, like it doesn't matter Yeah, it's because brilliant. there'll be tomorrow. Like everyone gets to have a bad day at work. Right. It's just when you're like comedians, surgeons, air traffic controllers, like we're not allowed to have bad days at work. Right. <laughs> not that I like that I lump myself in with surgeons and air traffic controllers. You're very important. I'm very important. So, <laughs> so here at World Gone Good, we talk about good things and people doing good things. And besides being one of the funniest people I know, you, during the pandemic – decided to create a barish boot camp I did. for free. For absolutely free. Tell everybody about that. Well, I decided, you know, fitness is what, you know, everything closed. I don't think that's any mystery to anybody, but everything closed down. So, you know, restaurants, gyms, everything. And people were mostly just sitting on their couches, binging Netflix and Oreos and probably Doritos and Cheetos. And, um, you know, I love to teach fitness classes and I needed to work out. So I just thought, you know what, 
So many people are out of work. I'm just going to turn on my phone and hop onto Instagram and I'm going to just teach these classes for free. And I took so much heat from the fitness industry about teaching for free. Sure. There were these like five hour, you know, Facebook live symposiums about, you know, don't give away, like maybe give away like little bits and pieces, but don't give it away for free. Don't give away whole classes. And, um, you know, this was like the, just before, um, you know, like before Apple fitness dropped and, you know, everybody jumped online. It was like the wild west for fitness. And, um, yeah, a lot of people gave me heat for doing it for free, but I felt like so many people, especially in entertainment, were out of work completely. Like anybody who works behind the scenes on anything and they don't make a ton of money anyway, like they weren't working, you know, makeup people weren't working, um, prop people, scenery people, production assistants, like all these people. And, and they're all the people who used to take my class. So I started doing it and uh, it just picked up and I just made it donation based so that lots of people take it for free. And I have a, you know, a handful of people that are still making a lot of cash and they donate and it's keeping it so I can keep it free for as long as I want. And how often are you teaching these classes? I try to do, if I'm not, if I don't have a crazy week, I can get four classes in, but I, now I'm like, in the beginning of the pandemic, Instagram wouldn't let us save things that were that long, but they changed somewhere in the middle. So I have like over 150 classes in my IGTV that oh, wow. I just leave open to everybody. Like go in there, have a workout. How long is the class? They're an hour long. And then I do, and I, then I sign off. And then five minutes later, I come back and I do what I call my after party. And that sort of, um, where if somebody wants to on my chat, if they want to ask me any dirt about, you know, any maybe gyms that I may have, you know, taken a walk through post pandemic, whether or not I think they're clean and safe. Right. Um, right. And so I do an after party where I just sort of like, like, let's say if I do a hit class, then I will do like an extra deep stretch. Or if I do, um, you know, class where I'm not using any dumbbells, I'll come back and do like upper body work with dumbbells, but it's super casual. And I let the dogs roam through the, through the frame and we chat and, you know, it, it's super low key, but I don't post the after party. So all the classes are posted on Instagram and then on YouTube. But yeah, I just leave them up there. Uh, before I ask my next question, I just have to say that I like the classes where the dogs aren't there because you seem thrown. <laughs> when the dogs are there? No, when they're not there. You oh. seem more thrown when they're not there. I, I know. Well, it is interesting because in the beginning, like my husband was always there to be my producer, but then, you know, he's gotten some things he has to go do. So when, he, when he's, when he, when we try to put the dogs away and then he's not here, it's sort of like I can hear the dogs and they're trying to get out. They want to walk around and they just seem to love the camera and the lights. So they, they like to be there in the beginning mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and make an appearance until they and have then, a bad set. Once they have a bad set, then they're yes, not going to want to be there anymore. They get a little camera shy and you know, one of them, like, <laughs> the, I get, and when I was doing it myself, I give them a, you know, a little chew stick to get out of the frame. And one of them just took it, sat in the middle of my mat, chewed it up and left a big pile of dog spit <laughs> on my mat for me. Now, what level are we looking at here? Do you do levels of fitness for all types of people or what are we talking? I give everybody options. So I teach each move in a level where I'll say this is, I teach it like long division. I'll go down to the lowest common denominator of the move. And then 
I'll grow from there. So I sort of progress the move instead of regress it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So I'll start with something really simple, just a step out to the side, then the step outside will become a squat. And then maybe I'll use the dumbbells with it or the body bar. So everybody can take it, but I have found that a lot of people um, feel compelled to do everything that I'm physically doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a group class, you know, I could, some people would be doing the first level. They'd be able to see people of all levels, but if they're a visual learner and they're only looking at me, it does get difficult because their, their um, tendency is to follow everything that I'm doing. So I try to move within the levels as I'm teaching it so that everyone can do it, but it is an hour. So I'll tell people in the beginning, like, if you don't want to do, you know, if you're not up to the whole class, like do just the warm up. the warmup's a good 15 minutes. Sure. Cause I'm not 20. So I like to warm up for a long time Sure, and then, and then just do that. And then maybe the next time do another five minutes. You know, and so. you're you're not a Zoom. These people watching are not on camera. It's nope. just you. It's just me because I found on Zoom, um, it's a whole different setup. First of all, and um, the way I have it set up is so I'm using my phone. I'm doing it on Instagram, but I have a big uh, flat screen television set up so that I can see what's on my phone screen, but giant facing me. So if people write things in the chat, then um, then I can, I can see it and I can respond to it without having to walk up to my phone. And on Zoom, you know, everything's in that little chat on the side and I haven't right. been able to get it to a monitor. And plus, a lot of people aren't um, Zoom camera savvy and right. I don't like to see up people's shorts um, <laughs> when I'm teaching. So, and I don't like to see everything that's going on in their house. It's distracting for me. Oh, sure. Cause you're very, you're very into, uh, interior decorating and very judgy. Well, <laughs> a little bit. No, it's just that a lot of people just don't realize, um, what's happening, you know, or they take up, they take a phone call or, you know what I mean? Like, I also think that people are, uh, some people are more shy being on camera. Some people are less shy being on camera. Yes. And if yeah, you're and not, I, yeah. if they take that away, it's why like when I take a spin class, I, I'm usually in the back. Yeah. I like, I like being almost against the wall. Yeah. I do. <laughs> Which is so funny. Years ago, there was a, there was an article about group fitness in some women's magazine, like Cosmo or something. And it had a diagram of a group fitness class and it showed like color coded, like people who sit in the back and people who stand in the front, like what their personalities were like. And yeah. it was pretty pretty accurate yeah but that's yeah very I, funny. I don't think a lot of people want to be on camera when they're working out no i don't think so either i think it's very different than if you're in a room at a boot camp or you're in a in a aerobics yeah. class or a yoga so just so my audience understands what is a bar class well in the standard sense it would be a bar class not like bar like where you have a margarita although that would be quite fun mm-hmm. that'd um, be a great class it's, you know, bar like a ballet bar. And in a studio, there's a lot of students that have an actual ballet bar set up and you would do a fitness class. So it'd be like really basic moves turned into with a lot of reps that you would do and, you know, have a ballet flavor. And then a lot of studios that don't have a, a ballet bar, like I would use a body bar, which is just a weighted bar covered in neoprene. And I would, you know, either put it perpendicular with your hand on top of it. And I would do some of the similar stuff um, in the class, but sort of center floor. So it's the same sort of 
little bit dance flavor, but not really. But then I found that in the in the brick and mortar world, I was having a lot of men take my class. So I started doing everything very parallel instead of turned out like ballet. And I don't call things like plies. I call it a sumo squat. And then, so they wanted a little more intensity. So it's sort of a very, the intervals are very graceful. They all flow together. So it's like a little bit of dance flavor, but I don't use dance terminology. Where can people find you online and where can people take these classes? Just on Instagram. I'm at Debbie Praver. It's so basic. I used to have all my comedy stuff on there, but there's been not a lot of comedy. So I just turned it into my fitness stuff. We end these shows with two questions. They are super simple and they can go back to what we've already talked about or anything that comes to mind. The first question is, Debbie Praver, who inspires you? Who inspires me? You say that so easy. Um, it has to be a specific person. Hmm. Does it have to be one person or can, you, can it be a type of person in general? Yeah, it's who inspires you. It can be whatever. What inspi- okay. People that inspire me are people that are flexible and the ability to just lean into whatever situation they're in and that have a huge sense of humor about themselves. So Great. anybody who falls into that category inspires me. Is that too general? No, that's terrific. The <laughs> final question, again, can go back to anything we already talked about or anything you have to say. It's really simple. Tell me something good. Something good. Um, well, here's something good. Um, you know, stand-up comedy has been on the down low and shut down all these months, as most live entertainment has. And by some stroke of luck, um, I was, my fitness career was pulled out of the gutter and I was um, excited enough to accept a job at producing digital fitness. (laughs) That's something amazing, but that's sort of very selfish. No, 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 no. Because Kathy Ladman said that, and you can go listen to it. She said that, she's like, this is going to be so self-involved, but she said something like um, she had a commercial get picked up for another you know, 18 weeks or whatever it was. And she's like, I know it's selfish, but I needed this so bad right now. Yeah. It was that thing, you know, my husband's a professional musician and I was comedian. Like what we were, we were like walking in circles on our house going like, what are we going to do? Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, my, my fitness career was resurrected and they know that once I get busy doing stand up, I'll, I'll be out, but you know, who knows that could be in three years. I worry that people aren't going to go out to live entertainment anymore. Or do you oh, think people will run streaming to get I to think, it? I don't think it's going to be a problem at all. I hope so. These assholes were going out before they got vaccinated with no masks. You think they're not going to go out now? It's strange to me. I don't know. Anyhow. So, yeah. So, that was my selfish good. Thank you, Debbie, for sharing your good. If you need a laugh or a workout, follow her on social media, especially on Instagram. Next time on World Gone Good. I'm not telling everyone to become vegan, to become plant-based. But what I am saying is let's not focus on the food that we're giving up. Let's just focus on the plethora of plant-based ingredients that Mother Earth has there to offer us 
and let's increase the、uh, the variety of foods,、uh, plant-based foods that we eat, for the sake of the environment. Because ultimately, it's not only healthier for us, but it's also、uh, better for、uh, for Mother Earth. Alejandra Schrader is one of those people you meet, and you immediately feel like you've known her your whole life. She is a master chef. Literally, she was on two different seasons of Master Chef, and she is absolutely passionate about food, the environment, and the planet. In fact, that's what her new book, The Low Carbon Cookbook, is all about. We are going to have a good talk about her family recipes that inspired the book. The difference between plant-based eating and being vegan, how to fall apart and get yourself. All back together again. On top of all that, on top of all that, rumor has it we are giving away a free copy of her book. Okay, it's no rumor. We're giving away a free copy of her book. I hope you'll join me. Until then, be good. <laughs> 